that um, I think it goes without saying, but the formatting of the outline is, is my own, so it's not inspired. These are not inspired bolds and italics. This is just my way of trying to help us look at the text through the logic of the passage, and I just hope that by the indenting of the sections, we kind of see what he's saying a little more clearly and break those long sentences down. Um, so, so I hope that's helpful. That's how I, how I like to think through this. So let's uh, start here at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So he's writing with Timothy, who was um, one of the people with Paul, uh, ministering in Corinth to the church there. And oh yeah, go I actually wanted to give uh, a bit of context on this uh, first. So this is the second letter to the Corinthians, which is the church that's established in the city of Corinth. And Corinth uh, was at this time, it was the capital city of the region of Achaia in Asia Minor. And Corinth was kind of bordering two different seafaring zones. So they had immense amounts of trade going through on both sides of the city, and because of this, it was an extremely wealthy city. Uh, they, it was just among the most wealthy of the time. Uh, it was also an established place with a temple, particularly to the goddess Venus, who is the goddess of love. So this temple basically housed a thousand prostitutes as part of the service to this deity. So it was very wealthy. And, they're, and also very so frivolous, but also sensual and licentious, and probably just like the most worldly sort of place we can think of. If you think of whatever's the most sort of worldly, seedy city around today, I don't know, Las Vegas or something, but this is like Corinth to a T, very much like this. They, had, um, they also hosted the, um, what was the term, the Isthmian Games, I think they were on the Isthmian Try saying Isthmian, it's not easy. The, the Isthmian Peninsula, and so it was also like a place people came, it was like a sporting place, a place people enjoyed, a place filled with prostitution. So this is the kind of city that uh, they're writing to. It's, it was also a very educated city. So they actually drew a lot of philosophically minded people. So it also had that context, like these people that think they know the way to live and they're going to live it up at the same time. So this is the context. So it's actually, it's really amazing that a church gets started here at all. Um, Paul, he started this church when he was journeying to Macedonia, and he had just come from uh, Athens, where the, he actually wasn't able to start a church. Nothing happened there, and he ended up at Corinth, and at Corinth, he gets joined by a Timothy and, um, and, and Erastus, and also Titus at another point joins them there. So he has this like ministering fellowship, they go to this terribly um, debauched city. Uh, they're rejected by the Jews. The Jewish synagogue here, occasionally we see people in the, in the Jewish synagogue, they get converted and that starts the church. They reject Paul's message. So he actually, it's through preaching to the Gentiles in Corinth that a church is able to start. So he's starting this church with no semblance of people with a strong um, Jewish background who know God's law, who know who God is, which is Probably a big reason why we see in his first letter he wrote, the first Corinthians, he's dealing with all sorts of immorality, um, especially a case where a guy um, was um, having his father's wife. That's very um, things that we would think are just so out of the left field for what we would be used to in the church. People are taking each other to court. They're getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. They're... Um, like uh, searing people's consciences, eating meat, sacrificed to idols, all sorts of wild stuff because it was a wild city. And 
church planting can be messy. And we're in probably more of a uh, context where it's like churches are planted in a more Jewish context. You know, people have a church background and knowledge of God. And we're often intolerant of churches that do seem to have a lot more mess, inner city churches, where it's like, wow, people are like at that church and they're living together and all this stuff. But uh, God seems to have a pretty high tolerance for mess in his church. And, but Paul is faithful to work it through with them, to try to correct. And so though Paul spent some time in the city, he leaves and he writes them 1 Corinthians, which is a very strong rebuke of them. Um, and he talks about this a lot in 2 Corinthians that, he sends this letter, and the letter is strongly rebuking the congregation, and Paul is really concerned to know how the church received it. Um, did the church receive this rebuke and stop these sinful practices? Um, have they turned against me because I was strong against them, or did they receive it? And, you know, you can't just phone them up and find out. So he, his, his plan for finding out how this letter was received is to tell some of his fellow laborers, either uh, he tells Titus and Timothy and Erastus to go back to Corinth and to bring him word. And the first person he has opportunity to hear from is Titus, and he's planning on meeting Titus in Troas, but Titus doesn't show up. And so Paul's really dejected that Titus didn't show up for this meeting because he wants to know what's happening in the church at Corinth. Uh, But fortunately, the the next city Paul moves on to, which was... um, it doesn't really matter. He's at another city, and Titus does meet him there. And Titus brings him word that the Corinthian church received his letter really well. And the church is sincerely repentant. They are dealing with this person that caused great offense. And Paul is super relieved. So we're going to see this a lot throughout this letter. Sort of Paul's, um, he, him talking about how he wanted to see them, how he wanted to find out how they were doing, and his relief at what Titus tells him about how they're doing. So he brings this word of comfort, which is a lot of what we see in this letter. But the other thing he brings that's not the good news is he seems to have told Paul that a lot of the people in the church at Corinth have kind of somewhat turned against Paul because they think he's like a fickle leader. Because it appears that Paul had told them that he was going to come see them really soon. And his plans got changed providentially and he wasn't able to see them when he wanted to. So they're accusing Paul, saying like, hey, what's up? Like, you said you cared about us. You said you were going to come visit us. You haven't showed up. Like, you were probably just in this all for yourself. Like, you didn't really care about us. And so a really significant part of 2 Corinthians is actually just Paul vindicating his ministry, vindicating his love for this church, and also vindicating his authority. Because people are rising up in this church, um, calling into question Paul's calling out as an apostle, they're wanting to take more authority. And so Paul really is concerned to say, no, I am a true apostle. This is a true ministry. I didn't lie to you guys. I'm sincere in how I um, want to care for you guys. And so that's why some would say that 2 Corinthians is Paul's most personal letter. Yeah. So who was like leading this church when Paul was not there? I don't know if we know specifically. So like it does seem like um, Timothy and Titus and these guys are there more than Paul is. But it doesn't seem like they're there permanently. So um, they, it's likely, I would say, they had elders raised up locally, but we don't have names of who they are. Um, we know that Paul told Timothy to raise up elders in the church in Ephesus and such and other churches. So um, I think we could safely assume that that was part of their task in Corinth was to establish leadership. And I don't, I don't know if names are mentioned. I could be wrong about that, but yeah. But they didn't pastor, so to speak. 
Well, I, I guess like the idea of having a pastor is in a sense a modern concept. Like what we see in the New Testament is more groups of elders leading churches with these itinerant evangelists sort of overseeing. So raising up eldership would kind of have been a sufficient leadership structure probably in the mind of the early church, I'd say. So, so our, our modern idea of having one senior pastor um, or one like highest pastor, that actually doesn't develop until um, 100 or 150 years into church history. So, which is actually why in the OPC, one of the term Presbyterian is from the Greek word presbruteros, which is referring to an elder. And so actually one of the essential things that makes a Presbyterian church Presbyterian is that we are led by a team of elders who all just get one vote. So even though we'll have a pastor who we'll call a teaching elder who does most of the preaching, he has no more official authority than any other elder. And currently, we're under the elders at Harvest, and they actually have more actually authority than Mike as a whole over what we're doing. And so that's why we're really concerned right now to raise up elders from within our own congregation um, to have a plural team of men to lead with Pastor Mike, but all having the same authority. And that is what makes us Presbyterian in a large sense. Does, does that make sense? Yeah. Then we're kind of getting excited. But this is, this is good stuff. This is interesting. So, so this is the context in which 2 Corinthians happens. And so this letter, it's, it's not really methodical in that like Paul's making one long, long, argue, long argument. It seems like there's a lot of different things he wants to tell them. And some people have looked at him and like, this letter's really disjointed. Um, but, you know, if you're writing someone a letter and you don't have, and, you know, paper and ink are expensive, it's like, you just want to tell them everything. And it's, it doesn't have to all flow perfectly from beginning to end. Whereas the letter to the Romans, Paul had never even been to that church, and he just wants to kind of write them about the truth. And so he makes a longer argument, but not so much in 2 Corinthians. So that means that'll take us to a lot of different um, topics as it, we jump around through these different chapters, which I think will keep it interesting. So any other comments or questions before we jump into the actual text? Okay, cool. Second Corinthians, uh, which probably was written about a year after the first letter went out. That is where we're at. So um, he brings up Timothy because they would have known Timothy. Uh, that probably added some credibility to Paul, and Paul probably added some credibility to Timothy. Writing to the church of God that's at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. So again, that was like the provincial region that Corinth was in, and we don't have much detail of this, but it seems like it's probable that other smaller churches kind of popped up around Corinth, maybe even based on their missionary labors. We just don't have details of it. Um, Paul's usual greeting in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I heard what our pastor often greets us with. Um, grace and peace, kind of actually stemming from the Greek greeting and the Hebrew greeting, um, shalom. So just an interesting thing there. Um, okay, verse 3, this section 3 to 7 is a really um, great section just to have in your back pocket as a, as a teaching on comfort and trials and when going through difficult seasons. This is just to just, in your head, just remember 2 Corinthians 1 is a really, really good passage to be able to share with people and to keep for yourself. Uh, so it begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So this, this idea of comfort is going to be this big theme of these next few verses, comfort and affliction, which come from the father of mercies, or you could think the father of compassions. 
and then God of all comfort. It's almost like God is so full of that mercy and compassion, that disposition in him, that then overflows into acts of comfort, acts of encouragement towards his people. Who, verse 4, comforts us in all our affliction. Uh, the Father of mercies comforts us in all our affliction. Um, I, th- I think it, it, is, it will be helpful for us to find these two words. So this word affliction here is a word that's literally meaning to be pressed down. And that is kind of how we feel when we're in trials. Like, I'm just being oppressed. Like, I have pressure on me. I'm feeling heavy laden. And that, that could be in, with health, with finances, with relationships, whatever it might be. So all our trials, basically, everything heavy and difficult in life, God's there to comfort us. And, okay, so this Greek word for comfort, we do not have a good English equivalent for this word. So this word is the word periklesis or perikaleo, which literally means to call to one side. To call to one side is the idea here. And this is a term used of the Holy Spirit in John 14. Um, if you have the, one translation might say the Holy Spirit, the comforter. Some say the Holy Spirit, the helper. Or you could even say the encourager. And so what's interesting about this word is it refers to a calling to the side, but it could be for a couple different purposes. So it could be to comfort, or it could be to encourage. And we kind of think of those terms as opposite, right? So it's like someone's sad, we get, bring them a comforting word, or it would be like someone's doing okay and we want to spur them on to greater things, we give them an encouraging word. But this word, parakaleo, would encompass both those ideas. So I think... And really the idea of help, but not necessarily a physical help, but more a mental, emotional helping. So I think you can think of any, any scenario where, say, like you're running in a race and you're tired or you're saddened by yourself. What it just means when someone walks up and comes beside you. What, what does that communicate? The coming beside you to run with you or to just sit and put my arm around you. Um, to, to say, you know, cheer up, the Lord will work through this, whatever it is. So I think this is more, more a holistic term that we can think of everything on the spectrum from comforting someone to encouraging someone. So this is, this is big. This is, this is a great um, concept. Are you guys following that? That, that work? Okay, so help, comfort. So I, I think comfort narrows it too much. We're, I think we're losing out if we just say comfort here. Comfort, encourage, console, whatever. So that... Um, God comforts us for this reason. Okay, the, verse four, this is really big. So that we may be, be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. So he's saying when God comforts us, and this is Paul talking namely about himself. He says when God comforts us in our trials, part of God's purpose in this is so that we can then comfort others in their trials. And he says God comforts us in all our affliction, so that we can comfort those in any affliction. And like, don't we know this, this in our lives to be true, that when you've walked through something difficult, you're far better equipped to help someone walking through that same difficult thing because you have a natural sympathy and a natural empathy for them in that. But I don't think that you have to have walked through the exact same thing as someone to come alongside and encourage and comfort because... All affliction has the same feeling of that heaviness, that oppression. So if God has helped you and comforted you in one trial, say um, a trial with finances, 
that feeling of comfort in the midst of affliction is something you can use to help someone who's suffering with health. Um, the experience of God's comfort in whatever trial we're in is that same sort of comfort we want to see people receive in even afflictions that we haven't experienced. So let's not feel held back that we can't try to encourage or help someone just because we haven't gone through exactly what they have. Um, have you ever gone through a trial or a difficulty? How did God meet you there? And use what he taught you in that um, to, to go and reach out to people. And the, as you've experienced this comfort, you want to give it. So as we experience the help of the Holy Spirit and his encouragement, we want to be those ministers of the Holy Spirit, to be vessels used by God to speak to others in that way. Verse 5 for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so this would definitely ref mostly refer to Paul actually being persecuted for the faith, following in Christ's footsteps. So, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul's so comforted in his trials. He says, if we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. Everything we're going to learn, Paul and his ministry team and their afflictions, they're going to use it to help the church. If we're comforted, it's for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. He's saying you have access to the same encouragement of the Spirit that we have. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And, and I think that a cool idea here is that um, for us, there are certain things of God that we're only going to experience in trial. You, you, don't ex you don't get to experience the beauty of someone comforting you if you're not in a situation where you need comfort. And so that's why, um, although this isn't in every case, you can talk to many believers who have experienced some of the sweetest fellowship and help of God in their greatest trials. Um, occasionally, God does seem to allow believers to be in a dark trial where they don't feel close to God, but very often, our sweetest experiences of God come from some of the, our lowest our lowest points, and to even just remind ourselves that actually I wouldn't have known what it was, what it meant for God to be a helper to me in that way if I hadn't have been in this situation where I so desperately needed his help. So as we experience the trials, we get to experience the comfort. Not that it's something we should seek after, but I think that recognition will encourage us. Uh, any thoughts or questions before we go to verse 8? Okay, verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, remember Paul talking, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were, and this is Asia Minor, so like modern-day Turkey. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. These are some intense trials Paul, Paul was going through. Burdened beyond our strength. Um, despairing of life. And... Um, Look, in, in looking into this, I used to interpret this as like Paul kind of got suicidal, but it seems like it's more likely that it's like we actually didn't think we would live through this um, because his persecutions were so extreme. And he's like, we despaired that we would even live. We almost didn't even have any hope that we would survive any longer because the persecutions were so intense. And where in verse 9 he says then, indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So it's like, if you have no hope in yourself, that's when you come to the place that you know you have to rely on God as the only one who raises the dead. And I think it's a, it's a neat metaphor of coming to salvation. And I think that ties in with the sermon this morning. 
to become like little children in that utter um, reliance on another, uh, not coming in their own strength. And that's that picture of salvation, that when we've learned that we can no longer rely on our own good works to stand before God, we can no longer rely on our performance in the past, um, but we know we have to rely on God to raise us from the dead, because only God can raise the dead. It's a supernatural work. He delivered us, verse 10, from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Um, their trust in the Lord. And so now he comes, he's telling them how dangerous his job is as a missionary. And so he tells them, verse 11, you must help us by prayer, right? Because prayer helps. Prayer does things and prayer is important. And, but part of the reason for his prayer is interesting. He doesn't say that, you know, help us by prayer so that we'll have this result. He has a higher a higher view here. He says, help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. And so this is part of one of the reasons, this is why we share prayer requests in the church. This is why there's things Mike prays for Sunday morning that are people in our midst, things that we all know about. Because corporate prayer and many people praying for the same thing can have a result that just one person praying can never have, and that is that many people thank God when the prayer is answered. And so because God is glorified by much thanksgiving, God is glorified abundantly when 30 people in a room are praising him for how he's answered a prayer. Although if only I had ever known about the prayer and I praised him for it, that would be great. But this is part of the reason why we, it's important to share prayer together and to pray together, because the results then resound in a, in a greater echo, if you will, of thanksgiving to God. And this is kind of the end of everything, giving thanks in all things to God the Father. We want all the fruit of our life to resound in thanksgiving to God. And so when we do pray for people and we do see answers to prayer, let's not forget to return thanks to God for it to praise him, because that's part of the end of why he answers our prayers, that we might praise him for it. Verse 12. Um, Paul, Paul is saying that he, he's confident to ask them to pray for him. In a sense, he's trusting that they're still on his side, because he says, our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behave in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. So Paul's saying, we were sincere when we were among you. We weren't being deceitful. I wasn't being double-minded. I wasn't being fickle. We were sincere towards you, and we want you to pray for us and continue in partnership with us. We're, verse 13, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope we'll fully understand. So kind of like, hey, you've been established in the faith. You, you know what I'm talking about. You know this God of comfort. We've taught you the basics of the faith. And I want you to come to full maturity. I want you to understand fully. Um, you have partial understanding, like you know. You've seen in part, you're working at it. But we want this faith of yours to keep growing, that on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, you will boast of us, just as we will boast of you. And I, I love that picture. It's a beautiful um, idea of the relationship between um, elders or church leaders and congregants is that there's a mutual boasting on the day of Christ. So um, for us, for whoever, in a sense, shared the gospel with us or, or poured into our life, 
On the final day, we get to say, God, I'm so thankful that you gave me that pastor when I was a kid who preached God's word to me. God, I'm so thankful for these parents you gave me that shared with me and raised me in the faith. And we boast, and we boast about these people God used in our lives. But then, um, it's mutual. Um, the, the, the shepherd, the leader then gets to both say, like, God, look at um, these people I've brought with me. Look at these people that I've sowed. Here's the fruit of my labors. And we'll just be rejoicing all together. I think it'll be a really beautiful thing. And I think that'll be part of uh, the joy of heaven is just seeing how many lives we touched, how many lives touched our life. And all those interconnections will just be so beautiful to discover. Uh, I think it'll be so neat. And you know, sometimes you actually hear that after, say, someone passes away and people start coming forward with stories about how that person impacted them. And it's like, oh, wow, I never knew that. Um, Just my brother-in-law's father passed away uh, two weeks ago and he was telling me how some guy came up to him at his dad's funeral and was saying, you know, your dad was the one that got me out of my depression. He's like, I never, he's like, yeah, just through your dad's example and encouragement, I found the courage to get out of bed and get back to work. And I like cast off this depression. He's like, that's amazing. I never knew my dad did that. So I think heaven will be a lot of rejoicing in those sorts of things. Um, 15, because I was sure of this, I was sure that God's at work in you. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. You know, Paul's like, I want you to experience God's leading and provision and grace for you through my ministry because I want to come back. I, want, I do want to come back to you. He says, I wanted to visit you on my way back to Macedonia, on my way to Macedonia. I wanted to visit you um, as I was coming back from Macedonia and have you guys send me out to Judea. So these, this is the plan that seems like it got foiled. Um, he was planning to do this, but it didn't work out. Um, and so that's why they're questioning him. It's like, Paul, you're being double-minded. And so his defense is, verse 17, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh? This is probably what they're accusing him of, saying yes, yes, but no, no. You know, when people kind of say, oh yeah, I'll totally do that. But they're totally meaning no, no. Uh, that's kind of what they're accusing Paul of. Um, so he says, as surely as God is faithful, we have not been deceitful. Our word to you has not been yes and no. And this is a really interesting transition in these next two verses because he's basically going to put forth Christ's truthfulness as the proof that he wants to be truthful. So he's going to show here how because Christ's word is firm, as one who seeks to model Christ, they can trust his integrity in this, tru- in this as well because he's wanting to follow Christ. So he's saying, I've, I've been faithful to my word. This was not an intentional thing because, verse 19 The Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, Christ was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes, right? Jesus has no deceit. God's not a man that he should lie. Jesus' word is firm. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. A beautiful gospel verse, but popping up in a really interesting context. Um, Like it almost feels like, why did Paul even say this right here after he's trying to defend himself? But we can't fully get in his mind, but I just wonder, it's like, you know, I'm following Christ. And then all of a sudden he's like switched. He's like, ah, the gospel's so great. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. Even though we can't always perfectly trust each other, we can perfectly trust Christ. 
And, and this verse, I think, is really important. So, um, and actually, any, any comments or questions on anything we've just covered? So you didn't answer your uh, speculation why Paul does that. What, uh, what, what, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I just feel like so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, saying like this is the man I'm following. Christ isn't faithful. I'm not going to be unlike Christ. I'm not going to be a deceitful man. That would be unchristian. Yeah, you think that work? Yeah. Yeah, it's just interesting. He doesn't like. I'm sure in our context we would be like give a reason, right? We would say, oh, but this this is the thing right. that held me up. He just does none of that. Um, it's very interesting because we like to explain whenever we do something wrong that that person knows hmm. exactly why. He, he just right. has a totally different... Hmm. It's almost like he doesn't feel the need to do that. Right, yeah. He's like, yeah. I, I don't lie because, you know, I'm, I'm hmm. on Christ. Right. Because, so. like, like, yeah, you know, it's like when it's like you invite someone over, invite someone to a party, and they're like, oh, sorry, we can't make it. And you're like, is that like a real I can't make it? Or are you just saying that because you don't want to come and you're kind of lying to me saying you're busy as an excuse? And then how nice it feels when someone's like, oh, hey, we have our niece's party and like, you know, she's turning four. This was planned weeks ago. It's like, oh, that's totally okay. I totally get it. But those vague answers, I was like, you know, no, I just, yeah, we can't make it. It's like, oh. <laughs> but, All right. Yep. Are you thinking of someone here in particular? Uh, no, I'm not. And I just feel that. I know, that's, that's a call. We, we've all experienced that. We've all experienced that. It was probably you, Chris. But I think at the same time, he's also getting at the reputation of Christ here. Right. He's very concerned that they will fall away from Christ. Hmm. And, and so he gives this word about Christ. Right. Right. An extra encouragement and boost to them, kind of thing. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. And, I, and I'm kind of thinking. I don't want to back the train up. Yeah. Yet, but if, if this Corinth was his major metropolis, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the only, is it safe to assume this is the only legitimate church? Probably, I'd say. Can you imagine the the dynamics of, of, of a legitimate church, what started out as a legitimate church, trying to, trying to thrive Right. No solid leader like Paul, right. like Timothy, like whoever, there on a consistent basis. This, right. this thing had been going down the road like a vehicle without a steering wheel. And that's definitely what it seems like in First Corinthians, and it seems like they're kind of getting their act together. You know, like Titus does have a good report, but I, yeah, I bet they're still so far away from like what we would think a normal, stable church. You know, it must have and, like even just the wildness of just the amount of charismatic gifts they had going on, the just um, the confusion we see in their services. Like I, I, I would have loved to have been there just to see just just what things were like, but. Um, this, okay, verse 20 is an amazing verse. All the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is telling us how Christ is the fulfillment of all God's good purposes for mankind. He's the redeemer of God's people. And so everything God was promising to Israel in the Old Testament, from the very beginning of promising um, that the woman would have a seed to crush the head of the serpent, to the promise that Abraham's descendants would fill the earth and be a blessing to the nations, to the promise that a king would always sit upon the throne, the promise of a Messiah coming who would rule in righteousness, um, whose government and peace would have no end. All these, um, it's kind of like saying no all throughout. It's like, well, not, not yet, just wait, kind of, 
we're getting closer, and then Christ, it's like, yes, 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 yes. Every promise, everything God wants to do in this world is all directed to Christ as the yes in it. And so that's why we call Christ, um, he's the mediator of the new covenant, because he's the one through whom all God's promised blessings to his people come. He's the one through whom all our future hope of glory is based. Um, every promise we have, if we're not accessing it through Christ, um, it's, it's vain. It's all through Christ. And so be, if we tie ourselves to Christ by faith, we then utter our amen to God. Um, it's almost like we say our yes to Christ's yes. I just love that idea. Um, Christ is the yes in everything. And we say, amen. I want that yes to be my yes. I say to God because he said yes to us in Christ. And it's all for God's glory. Also, um, mm-hmm. it's interesting that when it says for all the promises of God find their yes in him, that find is, what, like present tense? Um, so that would include like all the promises of God for the future? Right. New creation and our, even our sanctification. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, presently find their yes in him, which is... Yeah, and like we find the fulfillment of the yes in Christ every day as we hold to the promises of God, right? So yeah, this can be a present, ongoing reality for us. Um, we're basically out of time. So I'll just try to finish up these last couple of verses and um, we all try to make sure we don't get bombarded by kids beforehand. So, and it's God who establishes us with you in Christ, verse 21. Um, you know, he, Paul's saying, we're together with you in it. We're in Christ with you. And he's anointed us and has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Um, This idea of anointing is not a weird charismatic thing. Um, The the anointing is the picture that in the Old Testament, they took oil, they anointed priests, uh, and they anointed kings. Um, And this is the role that we take on as New Covenant believers, that um, Revelation 1 says that we're kings and priests to God. And so the anointing of the Holy Spirit that God gives us in Christ is the anointing that proclaims us as set apart. Um, it's actually what, partly what we picture in baptism, that the water that sets this child apart unto God's service. So the anointing of God's Holy Spirit sets us apart for his service as kings in this world to rule the creation and as priests to, to reflect um, creation's praises back to God and to... Um, intercede on creation's behalf to the Father, um, and he's sealed us. This Holy Spirit anointing is also a Holy Spirit sealing that, that protects us and preserves us and stamps God on us until the last day. And the Holy Spirit's in our hearts like a guarantee. It, it's a down payment that we're going to reach celestial glory. Uh, this is what's going to happen because we've been given the Holy Spirit in light of the promises of God finding their yes in Christ. So it's through Christ that then the anointing of the Holy Spirit can be released and distributed to us. Uh, 23, I call God to witness against me. Interesting, Paul's like making an oath, an imprecatory oath against himself here, which is not something we have a habit of doing, but interesting nonetheless. I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming to Corinth. And so this is actually the reason Paul gives why he didn't come. Which, to me, is an odd reason. He says, it was to spare you. Um, the commentators I read kind of take this as, 
almost like Paul didn't want to go back to Corinth until he knew how they responded to his letter. Because if they hadn't had time to work it through and process and discipline, he didn't want to have to come back to them with a rod and like make it happen and enforce it. It's almost as if he wanted to spare them from his in-person discipline, let, let his words do the work, um, and then come back to them at a later time. But I, I'm not guaranteed on that, but that's kind of the best I saw. But an interesting reason nonetheless. Um, and this is probably why we would think that. He says, 24, not to lord it over your faith. Like, I'm not, I'm not a heavy-handed leader who's going to be the lord over you and just crush you with my authority. But we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in faith. You've been given a faith foundation, and our job as ministers is to work with you for your joy. And just what a great um, parting idea that why we're at church, why we have pastors and hopefully elders soon, is it's all that we might grow in joy. As we grow in our faith, we ought to be growing in the joy of the Lord. And that's what we're trying to stir each other up to. As we edify one another, that we would be a rejoicing and joyful people. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, the one through whom we find forgiveness and redemption and salvation, and the one through whom we find um, the Holy Spirit outpoured, the one who um, sends the Holy Spirit that we might um, receive of his anointing, that we might minister in life as kings and priests in this world. Lord, we ask that you would bless us, that you would comfort us in our afflictions, that for anyone here that's going through a trial right now, that they would know that incredible, encouraging, comforting, helping presence of your Holy Spirit um, and know you closely and intimately in this time. Lord, that we would grow and progress in joy, that uh, we would know that sealing of the Spirit and every day, um, even this week, seek to look towards the promises that find their yes in Christ, the promise that you are for us and you are changing us. Uh, We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.